All right, we can turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. You're probably already there from the scripture reading, but Revelation uh, 17 verses 5 through 13 this morning, that's going to be our passage uh, uh, probably for the next couple weeks, I would guess. We'll see, we'll see how things go uh, this morning. Uh, last time we began our look at uh, Revelation 17, it was not a mistake that we read the same scripture reading as uh, last week, if you were here last week, uh, because we're still here in this passage, and this is one of those places in scripture that probably takes you a time or two or ten to uh, read through it to to really understand the sequence of what's being said there. And so we'll spend uh, a lot of time going through this so that we all uh, understand what the Lord is is communicating here. Obviously, this is one of the more complex places in Scripture to put the details together, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be uh, impossible to understand. You don't uh, need to have a PhD in the Bible to know what the Lord is is communicating. Here, it just takes, uh, may take some time though to get through the details, but if we properly interpret what is written here for us and see it in context and, and all of those things, we can come away with a pretty good idea, in fact, an exact idea of what God is communicating here. We may not be able to see every detail of this in the world around us right now, but we most certainly can see what the Lord is communicating here. That's the whole purpose of the Bible, actually, for us to know everything that God wants us to know about him and the topics that he discusses in the Bible. So last time we saw that beginning in chapter 17, we have another uh, parenthetical break in the action, if you will, or uh, continuation of the narrative. Chapter 16 ends with the seven bowl judgments that take us. The seventh bowl is the end. That is the end of the tribulation when Christ comes again. But Revelation 17 is not Revelation 19. It's not describing Christ coming again and uh, casting Satan into the abyss and all of these events that take place. That's later. Now we have a break to describe information about more things that happened, some would say even, before the seven bold judgments take place. And certainly describing things that at least take place during the bold judgments and moving forward. And the topic of discussion is Babylon, this future city that is going to come to prominence in this world and essentially its destruction. Now, the Bible in large part is a book that is about two cities, uh, tale of two cities. Uh, that I don't think, is it uh, Dickens? Is he the author of that? He didn't, uh, well, he came up with the title, but it's very reminiscent of what's going on in the Bible as well, a tale of two cities. 
Jerusalem, God's city, and Babylon, Satan's city, Satan's way of doing things, and how these two, God and Satan, how these two uh, elements are going to come to their conclusion. And as people who know anything about the Bible, we ought to know what the conclusion is going to be. This isn't uh, Rocky Six, you know, the battle of good and evil and oh, who's going to win? This is, this is the Lord and how he is fixing the world's problem. Of course, the Lord is going to be victorious and he's showing us one of the major parts of how he will be victorious in the destruction of the city of Babylon and eventually evil itself. And what we have here in Revelation 17 and 18 is a description of the perfect merging together of religion and state, so much so that they become almost uh, synonymous with one another, that they are, they are one entity. They're, the distinctions between them are so uh, tight and seemingly unable to be separated from one another. And that is the path that we are headed on. If you were here in Sunday school, we talked about the the declaration from Department of Religion in Israel and these kinds of things, how they are working together uh, with governments to essentially exert control over you and me, over people. That's what uh, religions do, and that's what governments do as well. And when they come together, they become an incredible force of evil. And that is what is portrayed in Revelation 17 and 18 and its destruction in the end times. So we find ourselves uh, in this uh, section of Revelation, the things which will take place after these things, these, these things are not happening now. The stage is most certainly being set for these things to happen. We can rest assured on that. They are not happening now. They will take place after these things. The book of Revelation is largely about this tribulation period, a future seven-year period where God is going to pour out his wrath upon the earth so that he can come again and establish his kingdom literally upon this earth. That began in Revelation 6. It began with the seal judgments, then we had an intermission, then we had trumpet judgments, another intermission, uh, some, a lot of topics discussed there, the three main uh, entities that are going to be working during this time in the world are Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We saw that in our second intermission period between the, the trumpet and bull judgments. And then Revelation 16 was about the bull judgments. Now we find ourselves in 17 and 18, which describes the destruction of Babylon. Last time we were introduced to this harlot that is riding on the beast. We'll see some more of that today. And uh, we saw how chapter 17 and 18 are all one unit. A lot of times our chapter divisions kind of get in the way of, of what's being communicated. And we could think, oh, 17 is about this topic and 18 is about this other topic when uh, not really. It's all about one topic. And that topic is a city called 
Babylon, Revelation 17, 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Just plain reading of scripture. The harlot is not the Pope. The harlot is not Roman Catholicism. The harlot is not the city of Rome. The harlot is exactly what it says on the page there. Babylon the great, Revelation 17, 5. And Babylon is nothing other than a city. Now, there are some concepts that go along with this city, just like uh, when we think of Wall Street, for example. It is, I've been there in New York City, in Manhattan. It's a physical place. You can take a picture of the street sign there that says Wall Street, but, there's, but we understand that there's something that goes along with Wall Street. It means something to us. That's where the stock market is and money and finances. And there's all kinds of examples like this. Hollywood, another place. You can fly into Los Angeles. If you're flying into uh, Los Angeles, uh, I would recommend, well, if you're coming from the north, I would recommend sitting on the left side of the airplane. You can look out and you can fly right past the Hollywood sign. It's right there on the, the side of the hill. It's a literal geographical place on this planet. Obviously, there's something that goes along with the name of that city. It's the place where all the movies are made, where all the degradation is uh, <laughs> brought right into, in front of our faces. Uh, a good example of what Babylon is going to be. It is a literal geographic place on this planet that is essentially going to be the headquarters for a time of this coming end times, one world government, one world religion, one world economy, everything coming together in a physical place that is a literal city. Revelation 17, 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city. Chapter 17 and 18 are all about the destruction of this city, Babylon. And we can take away so, so many uh, wonderful details from this to understand things that are going on in this world today. Primarily, this is a, a perfect coming together of religion and state to form this super government that has ultimate control over every single person on this planet. Uh, but it is going to be destroyed. So today we look at the merging of religion and state. We'll look again at this term, the mystery, because there's so much uh, misunderstanding about this term in general and specifically what it, what it means here in Revelation 17, 15. Just because it says mystery, it doesn't give us a license to just start making things up about what the words on the page say. That's very dangerous territory to move into. So we'll also, we'll look at that again. We'll look at the, the fact that this city, Babylon the Great, is the mother of harlots and what that means. And then uh, maybe we'll make it to these mountains uh, that are also part of the description. We begin with the mystery again, Revelation 17, 15. On, we have this harlot, this woman being described as writing 
on a beast, it says in Revelation 17, 5, and on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, if you uh, do any kind of uh, listening to other uh, teachers or reading other things, there's a good chance that you're going to come across the idea that, well, it's not the way it's written here in the NASB. Rather, it should be, mystery should be included in the title. It's Mystery Babylon. And so therefore, you need to subscribe to my channel and buy my books and uh, listen to me nonstop. And I will tell you what the mystery is. And I've got a merch store too, if you want to buy some of that. Uh, that obviously is a is a real problem. So last time we spent some time looking at this mystery and whether or not mystery is included in the title. And we came away with the uh, conclusion that no, it is not. It is actually functioning uh, as a noun here. It's not an adjective. It is a noun. And it's uh, the name that was written on her forehead is a mystery And the name is Babylon the Great. And now I'm going to tell you, the angel says, what the mystery is. Revelation 17, 7, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. So we can take away from that, that the angel is telling us what the mystery is. We don't get to just uh, make up what the mystery is. And I read a fascinating article this week, came across uh, from Dr. Chris Cohn, uh, whom I've met. He's a, a really nice guy, one of the most interesting people you'll, you'll come across. Uh, he wrote a, a wonderful article about dispensationalism and, and what it actually is. A lot of these people who believe in and teach this mystery Babylon, well, the they're under the banner of dispensationalists. They are, quote-unquote, dispensationalists. But there, there is a misunderstanding about what dispensationalism actually is, and that's what leads to these problems here in understanding whether if this is mystery Babylon and now I get to tell you what the mystery is, or do, do the scriptures tell us what the mystery is. Do we have to go to some source outside of the Bible to understand this? And the answer, of course, is no. So what is dispensationalism and why why would there be different conclusions on something that is, well, this is rather important information that's being described to us as we move further and further towards down the timeline towards when these events will take place, this becomes more and more important for us to understand what is happening here. So uh, why do people say that, oh, it's mystery Babylon, and so it's Rome then? It's mystery Babylon, so this is actually describing America. How are they coming to this conclusion that it seems to be so diametrically opposed to what we're saying that, the, well, it's Babylon and it's going to be a literal place on the earth. Uh, how does this happen? Well, par- part of the, the, the problem is this idea of sensationalism and not 
truly understanding what dispensationalism actually is. One of the critiques of dispensationalism is that it's sensationalistic, that we're, oh, we're just looking at current events and we're uh, jamming those into the Bible in order to uh, you know, whip up concern or cause worry so that we'll buy this particular prop, uh, uh, thing or whatever the reason is to sell books and these kinds of things. You know, this idea of uh, going to current events and then going to the Bible and saying, oh, see, see, here it is. I have this new revelation, this new uh, uh prophecy from the Bible, and I can show you it if you'll just buy my book, and I'll explain this new thing that's happening. That is a misuse of dispensationalism. See, in in reality, dispensationalism and the conclusions are kind of boring. They don't sell books all that well. You don't fill uh, 50,000-seat arenas with people on Sunday morning to come and learn what the Bible says. And that's a very unfortunate thing. But that's what dispensationalism is. Understanding what the Bible says. Dispensationalism is not a scheme by which we interpret the Bible. Therein lies the problem. Therein lies the issue with why people want to make this mystery Babylon and then say it's Rome, it's Catholicism, it's whatever, other than what the words on the page say. Dispensationalism is a system of theology that is the result of interpreting the Bible consistently, literally, grammatically, historically. It is the result of a method of interpretation. It is not a method of interpretation in and of itself. That, there is a, there is, that is a very clear distinction that we have to understand. And if we think of dispensationalism as a method of interpretation, then we get into all sorts of problems because one of the, the ideas of dispensationalism is that the Lord can come at any time. That, that's a fact that we get from the Bible. That his, that his coming again is near, it's imminent, he can come at any moment, all true. He will come again in the rapture, come Lord Jesus today, take us out of this place, take us to heaven so we can be with you forever. All our problems will be solved instantaneously when we are before him in heaven. That can happen today. So if I, however, if I take that concept and then start applying that everywhere across the board, I start seeing the boogeyman behind every tree. Oh, this guy is the Antichrist. Why? Because the Lord can come again. He could come again at any moment. And did you see that uh thing that they signed over in Israel, the coming together of all the religions of the world and government to fight climate change and take away uh, all of our money and make sure we're freezing to death in the winter. Jesus can come again at any second. And there it is. That's one world government. That's it. And so we come to this and now we start to 
rather than what the Bible, the words on the page are saying, we've got to start inventing these things to be here right now and to be happening right now. So, and that is an issue. Rather than interpreting literally, consistently, literally, grammatically, historically, what the words on the page say, and then coming to conclusions. Dispensationalism is not a lens to look at the Bible through. That's where we get into problems in, a, in any number of places. Looking at the Bible through a particular lens is the problem of Reformed theology. They use a system of thought as the lens for how they interpret the Bible. So when you, if you have a, a Reformed friend, they're going to say, well, I interpret the Bible consistently, uh, literally. I believe in a literal interpretation. I'm in the, the school of thought of Martin Luther and these people who used a literal interpretation of the Bible. And well, the problem, uh, you, you maybe, but you forgot the consistent part on the front there. It has to be consistent across all genres of the Bible, including prophecy. So we apply our literal interpretation that you just take the words on the page, what they mean the same way I'm communicating to you right now. This isn't a code. This isn't, um, I'm not using metaphorical language. I'm trying to just communicate directly to you. That's what God does in the Bible. He is communicating to us. Sometimes he uses figurative language. And that's where this grammatical part comes into play. We have to understand the method that is being used, the method of communication that's being used. We have to understand it in its historical context. But when the plain words on the page have plain meaning, well, that's the meaning. Like when it says that Jesus died for the sins of the world, not just mine, not just yours, not just the believers of the world, but he died for the sins of the entire world. Well, that means he died for the sins of the entire world. This isn't hard to figure out. So, and therefore, every person can be saved because Jesus came into this world to save sinners like you and like me. And like uh, Vladimir Putin and Adolf Hitler, he died for their sins too. And they could be saved if they would only trust in Christ because he's God in human flesh and his blood is eternally powerful and perfect and can pay for the sins of the world. And that's what we are trusting in. That, those just another example of a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. It goes beyond just uh, prophecy things. It's true across, across the board. So this idea of sensationalism and newspaper exegesis and uh, uh, quite frankly, mystery Babylon, mystery Babylon, it's a mystery, so therefore it's Rome, America, uh, whatever, is the result of not using consistently a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, period. Always. Every single time you come across a, a sensationalistic uh, concept that's supposedly under the guise of dispensationalism, 
Well, it's not. <laughs> it's using dispensationalism as a lens to look at the Bible rather than interpreting the words on the page. Oh, let's take another example. The mark of the beast. The COVID vaccine cannot, cannot, cannot be the mark of the beast. Oh, but if you take it, you'll die. Well, that's interesting because the Bible says if you don't take the mark of the beast, you die. Exactly the opposite of that. Now, if you take a COVID vaccine, you may die. <laughs> I'm not saying that you won't. You very well might. There certainly seem to be an awful lot of people falling over dead in their 30s, 40s, and 50s lately. Uh, but that doesn't make it the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is a very specific thing that is revealed to us in God's word that will be in the future. It's taken as a sign of worship of the Antichrist, a literal person who will be on this planet. It will be a literal mark on your hand or your forehead that people will see and know that, yes, you are on our team. You worship Antichrist. You worship Satan. You're on our team. It will be distinguishable for you. And if you don't take it, your head will be cut off. Those are the facts from the scripture. So this, this idea of dispensationalism is it is a system of theology that is the result of how we interpret the Bible. It is not a method to interpret the Bible. Very important for us to, to understand that. And that will help us uh, avoid some of these problems with what is Babylon. And so also another concept that we need to understand is what is a mystery. We've talked about this before in other places. So probably every time <laughs> this word shows up in our passages, we do this because people uh, need to hear things about 28 times before it sinks in. That's like, that's a kind of a, a fact <laughs> for us. We're kind of dumb. We need to hear things over and over every one of us included. That's just the way our brains work. So what is a mystery according to the Bible, not according to uh, the Agatha Christie channel? What is a mystery according to the Bible? Mysterion is the Greek term, and it, essentially it is a previously unrevealed truth, something that was not revealed before. Why is John wandering, wondering when he sees this woman riding on the beast? Because he's never seen this before. He doesn't know what it is. So the angel is going to reveal it to him. That's why it is, her name was written, a mystery, comma, Babylon the Great being her name. Daniel chapter 2, interestingly, is the only place in the Old Testament uh, the Hebrew Bible that's been translated into Greek, the Septuagint, Daniel 2 is the only place where this term, mysterion, is used in the Old Testament. What happens in Daniel chapter 2? Same thing that we're learning about here in Daniel chapter 17. Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue. It has four parts to it, uh, head of gold, a uh, chest of silver, a uh, waist of bronze, legs. Uh, I knew I would forget. Iron <laughs> uh, are the legs representing four great kingdoms. Uh, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, 
Rome, a stone comes, a mountain comes. Keep that concept that Daniel 2 calls it a mountain comes, hits that statue that is representative of the great kingdoms of the earth, hits that statue on the feet and crushes it, destroys it. And then that stone grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Mountain. It's a mountain that does this. Keep that. Remember that. That's where we see this, mis- this term mystery used. It's not something that needs to be figured out. It's revealed to us. It's right there in Daniel 2. It tells us plainly these four parts of this statue are four kingdoms that will come into this uh, world and will eventually be destroyed. And then God's kingdom will come into the earth. Uh, That is the mystery that is revealed. Mysterion used in the New Testament about 27 times, according to the Nestle and Allen version uh, 28 of the uh, New Testament Greek. It's used 27 times in the New Testament, and it is never used as an adjective. Not one time. This one included. Every other use of the term mysterion, it is a noun in the sentence. And so, uh, if this mystery that is being shown here was in Daniel chapter 2, well, why is it still called a mystery in Revelation 17 if it's already been revealed? Well, that's a good question. The Daniel 2 is revealing kind of generic uh, things that there's going to be these four kingdoms that come and then the kingdom is going to come. Israel knew about the kingdom coming to the earth, of course, that's the thing that they're looking for still to this day. They're looking for the kingdom to come to this earth, but they didn't know the specifics about the empires that would come first in Daniel chapter 2, and they didn't know the specifics of the fact that this end time kingdom that John is seeing is going to be destroyed and that it's merging with uh, a satanic kingdom and all of these details that we get. That's why it's called a mystery here. Uh, John didn't, he had some of the information. He didn't have this information, so it's still called a mystery. So there are several mysteries in the New Kingdom, or in the New Testament, the mysteries of the kingdom, the Matthew 13 parallels this term mysterion is used and Jesus revealed something to his apostles there even when he was going to die be resurrected and rise again uh, the kingdom that doesn't mean the kingdom is coming there's going to be an intervening period of time you and I are living in that right now Matthew 13 uh, parables there's a mystery in Romans 11:25 of a partial hardening of the nation of Israel. We're living in that too. Uh, isn't it? It's a great time to be alive. We're seeing these things. There is a partial hardening that's happening to the nation of Israel. And when God is done with the Gentile people, that barrier will be removed. They'll believe in Christ and he will come again and establish his kingdom. There's a mystery of the church that is revealed in several places in Scripture. Again, man, we get all the mysteries. We're it. 
We are, you and I are the number one mystery in all of the Bible revelation, this time in which we are living, the church age. It may not seem like it's all that fantastic, but it's a pretty neat time to be alive in terms of the Bible and God. And that ought to get us excited. He talks an awful lot about that in the New Testament. We see there that there's a mystery of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. The mystery there being that Jesus Christ will come again, as we mentioned before, at any moment, and we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and in Christ's presence, caught up from the earth into the clouds, meet the Lord in the air, and taken back to the Father's house. That's something, no mention of that whatsoever in the Old Testament. Jesus began that revelation in John 14. Paul expanded upon it uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and in many, many other places. And the final mystery of the New Testament is this mystery of Babylon that we see here in Revelation 17. The city of Babylon will be prominent in the end times. That is what is being described here in Revelation 17 and 18. So uh, the mystery, very important for us to understand this, interpret the words on the page as they are written here, mystery being a noun, not an adjective. Uh, It's never used as an adjective in the New Testament. If it's mystery Babylon is part of the title, then mystery is an adjective describing Babylon the great. And that's not what is here. It is a mystery, Babylon the great. The angel is then going to go on and reveal the mystery. Nowhere else is Babylon the Great called Mystery Babylon the Great. Uh, In the other times we see that phrase in Revelation itself, it's only called Babylon the Great. It's not Babylon the Great is not uh, the mystery, or it's kind of hard to, to put into words. It is a mystery, but the mystery is being revealed to us. The truth is being revealed. It's not part of the title. It is just a word to say that this is something that we didn't know about before, and now he is going to tell us what it means. The name of on her forehead is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And this is another interesting part of this. Notice she is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is the description part of her title. Her name is Babylon the Great, but she has some attributes. And one of those is that she is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That, that just simply means that, that this woman that is portrayed here, that has the name Babylon the Great, is the progenitor of false religion and false actions on this earth. That's what mother means. Uh, Eve is said to be the mother of humanity because she gave birth to the first 
uh, child, Cain, and became the mother of all of us, essentially. You can trace our DNA all the way back to Eve, uh, because that's where we, we all came from originally. One takeaway from this is that since she is the mother of harlots, as we discussed last time, she cannot be Rome, period. She cannot be Roman Catholicism because Roman Catholicism in Rome is not the mother of harlots. It's not the you know, evil or uh, false religion did not begin with the Catholic Church in spite of what the reformers might have wanted to think and, and did think. They, and this is where we get a lot of our uh, understanding, or some people uh, get a lot of their understanding from the reformers in this regard, who all thought it was Rome and the Pope and Catholicism and all of these things. And unfortunately, people, dispensationalists, will take a dispensationalism as a lens, view the scriptures, and then say, oh, it's Rome. This is, this is another one of the, the, the problems with having a lens through which we see the scriptures. We always want to go back to the past and, oh, what did, what, did, uh, what did Luther say about this? What did Ryrie say about this? What did the church fathers say about this? We're very concerned about the church fathers and the theologians of the past, when we view scripture in a lens, with a lens on, we're only concerned about what these people are saying over what the words on the page say. That that is a very real problem. We see it uh, in Reformed theology. Again, another perfect example of having a lens. Well, we need to know what Augustine thought on this. We need to know what Luther thought or Calvin thought on these things, on these items, and, and that becomes our uh, theology rather than consistent literal interpretation of the Bible and allowing that to form our theology. Uh, Ryrie, a, a wonderful scholar, a wonderful teacher and writer, has some fantastic books on theology and a number of issues. He wasn't perfect. Uh, and he saw Babylon here as Rome. He, in his study Bible, if you happen to have one, I, I think it's this uh, passage. I'm not completely sure, but at some point in here, he says, when you read Babylon, insert Rome. Where did that come from? Man, that's not literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. That's a lens. That's reading the Bible with a lens and saying, that, oh, everybody else in the past has said Babylon is Rome, so Babylon is Rome, instead of literally reading the, per, the, the words on the page. Words on the page determine meaning. That's just a fact. And oh, by the way, uh, wasn't the Reformed Church birthed out of the Roman Catholic Church? <laughs> Mother equals progenitor? Uh-oh. That's why you still see some in some Reformed churches, you see things like baby baptism and, uh, you know, these kinds, of, these kinds of wrong beliefs because they were birthed 
out of the Catholic Church. They still have some of that mud on them coming up out of the out of the swamp, which even a lot of uh, dispensationalists, the same thing. Uh, Robbie Dean uses that analogy, a wonderful analogy that we can come out of the swamp and muck of false religion and and uh, false belief, not even false religion, but misunderstanding of the scriptures. And you can be a, a dispensationalist and start to believe these things. And man, you still have some of that swamp material <laughs> on yourself. You can look at, uh, well, there's a number of uh, avenues that we could take with that concerning, oh, Calvinist election and uh, salvation, these kinds of things. So just be... <laughs> Bab- this woman, Babylon, is the mother of harlots. And so what does that, what exactly does that mean? Well, in our Old Testament, uh, when we go back to Genesis 11, and we see this Babel, the Tower of Babel, and we look at where it talks about Nebuchadnezzar, for example, and Daniel 2 being the king of Babylon, all of our English Bibles say, guess what it reads in Hebrew? Babel. It looks, it's exactly the same word. It is Babel. Some, for some reason, somewhere in there, Babel became Babylon. Uh, but in the Hebrew, it's Babel everywhere that it's used. They're one in the same place, same uh, entity, if you will. In the beginning of this uh, false religion, or the mother of false religion, is right there in Genesis chapter 11, uh, beginning in verses 1 through 9. And I don't have it on a slide. So Genesis 11 and verse 1, you're probably familiar with that passage. It's going to tell us when this started. Shortly after the flood, Genesis 10 gives us the, all of the nations of the world that came into being after the flood. Oh, oh wait a second. I thought we were all uh, one people. And now suddenly we're talking about all these different nations and, and groups of people. Where did they come from? Oh, good question. Genesis 11 tells you the answer. There's uh, the book of Genesis and the Bible in general does that a lot. They'll show you one thing and then... Following that, they give you the description of it. Sounds a lot like Revelation. Revelation 16, the bold judgments. Now let's get some more information about what happens in that. That's what Genesis 11 is. It says in verse 1, Now the whole earth used the same language and in the same words. It came about as they journeyed east. You remember they were told to fill the earth. God told the people of the world after the flood, fill the earth. They said to one another in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. Uh, verse 2, I forgot the, the important part. <laughs> uh, came about, they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They didn't fill the earth, they settled in Shinar. Uh, So they get brick and stone. Verse four, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You mean like God told you to do? (laughs) 
The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. They will have all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another, one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, if we go back to Genesis 10, we're going to find out who was in charge of that building project. Genesis 10:8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna and in the land of Shinar. This place, Babel and this tower was being constructed, head up, headed up by this man named Nimrod. But the Lord saw this and ended it quickly by confusing their language. They wanted to come together as one people, one uh, world, create their own religion against God, unite themselves against God in this way. And God destroyed it through confusing their language. And now as people have the ability to all learn one language, we're coming right back together again uh, we even have computers that will translate for us. So we don't even need to speak it. We can just speak into a computer. It will translate it and the person can hear it and they can do the same back to us. And so what did they do when they were then spread out throughout the entire world? They took their false religion with them. Now there's, there is a somewhat popular book called The Two Babylons that uh, kind of, it, it is a theory about how these things happened and how eventually this made its way into uh, Roman Catholicism, a lot of these false religions that were birthed there in Babel or Babylon and how it's taken throughout the entire world. And some people will, uh, no, there, there's no evidence for that happening uh, other than Hislop is the author of the book. Other than his book, there's no uh, evidence for that happening. Well, uh, there's a problem with that. Now, some of these pictures, uh, I, not, nobody watches us, so we're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> these pictures were borrowed from the internet because they're the only ones I could find. Uh, but at any rate, here's an artist's rendition of the Tower of Babel. And again, artist's rendition, so we don't really know, but we do know this. We do know that this pyramid, this uh, ziggurat, if you will, is in Mexico, Chichen Itza, Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula. 
is a uh, pyramid. Obviously, there are the great pyramids in Egypt, very far from this place in Mexico. Uh, you can read about Cortez's account, the Spanish kind of conqueror of Latin America and South America, if you will. You can read his accounts about the incredible paganism of these people and human sacrifices that they would do on the top of this thing, literally sacrificing humans, and then they would throw them down the side, down the stairs, and this kind of thing uh, by the hundreds, sacrificing to their false gods. Here's one in Korea that I came across. This is the, uh, the tomb of, a, of the general, it's called, in Korea. Very similar looking structure. Oh, here's one in Indonesia, by the way. This is a Hindu temple in Indonesia. Very similar type structure. What is something else that, that uh, all of these places uh, around the world, you can find these kinds of structures literally around the world. I showed you an example from, uh, we all know the pyramids in Egypt, Mexico, Indonesia, Korea. They're all over the entire world. Almost like people uh, took their religion with them when they were scattered around the world, just as it says in Genesis chapter 11. Now, of course, uh, this isn't proof positive, but it, but it is most definitely uh, a description or evidence that shows us that we can kind of see these uh, false religions that are going around the world. And they didn't just have pyramids, but they had a, a kind of a, a mother-child cult that goes with it that is spread around the world with these pyramids. Uh, and you can do your own research on that, but there seems to be a tie with what was going on in Babylon being spread around the world, and we see the same mother-child cult around the world. In China, the mother is called Xingmu in ancient China. She is their mother god, if you will. Uh, Hertha in ancient Germany. Aphrodite was her name to the Greeks. Sometimes it's Diana. You can see that right in the Bible, that she was worshipped in Ephesus when uh, Paul was there, and they were very, obviously, very uh, sensual, if you will. Sexual immorality was a part of their religion. That's why Paul is condemning it so vehemently to not participate in that. Uh, this uh, false mother god is Venus to the Romans. Uh, Baal in Canaan, Baal and the Ashtaroth that the, that the Israelites worship in Judges chapter 2, mother, son, cult, same thing that is happening, uh, most likely happening in Babel that gets taken throughout the entire world as the mother of harlots. You can read about the Israelites worshiping the queen of heaven and crying for Tammuz and these kinds of things that are happening in, in the Old Testament. 
And so when we come to Roman Catholicism and we see their uh, worship of Mary and it's pictured oftentimes, not so much in American Catholicism, but go to Latin America, go to Europe, uh, Italy, nonstop. That's all there is. Our pictures of Mary holding the baby Jesus is very much the emphasis of uh, Roman Catholicism pretty much everywhere that I've been in the world anyway, outside of, of America, they don't do that to, uh, nearly as much here as they do uh, in the rest of the world, if you will. And so what else goes along with this every single time with false religion is false actions. That's why Paul uh, admonishes the Ephesians and the church in general to separate yourself from those things, the Corinthians, because that religion, that false religion is intimately connected with immorality and false actions. She is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The two are just go hand in hand together. False religion always, always, always leads to false actions or abominations. Nimrod wanted to make and they wanted to make a name for themselves. Oh, if we if we obey God and do what he says, well, God's going to get all the glory. Uh, don't you want some of the glory? Don't you want to be somebody? Let's not do what God says. Let's make our own thing and we can make a name for ourselves. Uh the Canaanites in in the Old Testament, uh yeah, false actions, abominations, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, An obvious example. Israel, when they decided to worship a golden calf rather than the God of the universe, what what does it say they did? Exodus 32, 1 through 6, they worshiped the golden calf. Oh, it just happened. Aaron says, I I don't know. We gathered the gold, threw it into the fire, and poof, out popped this golden God. I'm sorry. But they, they rose up to play, it says, when they worshiped the false god. They engaged in immorality. Uh, J- Jeremiah 32, the ultimate example of immorality, child sacrifice taking place in the nation of Israel. They had their children pass through the fire. So when we, you know, I mentioned this earlier as well in Sunday school, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to to make of uh, states, our nation, uh, voting overwhelmingly to enshrine the right to murder your baby in the constitution of our state. It passes sixty forty. Uh, I got. I don't. I don't think that's out. I I believe that is outside the margin of error for uh, any kind of cheating or scheming. I I hate to be the bearer of of bad news. I, 60, 40, it's not even close. <laughs> I don't think you can, I guess you could, if you can invent that number of votes, but I, I'm not so sure. Uh, the, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah would have voted in favor of the right to murder their babies. I guarantee you. And we're, we're not a whole lot different than Sodom and Gomorrah in America today, unfortunately. So yeah, there are a lot of issues with voting 
security. Obviously, the things need to be secure. It ought to be on a paper ballot counted by somebody, and we ought to know the results at the end of the day. It shouldn't be that hard. Uh, but we're living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the people, particularly ages 30 and below, have been under the constant instruction of Marcus, Marxist God-hating, America-hating public schools for uh, upwards of 17 years if they went to college. And yeah, they don't care about America and, our, and, and God and godly living. They care about Marxism and anti-God religion. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. And that brings us to the mountains where as much as I want to keep going, I'm not going to do it today. <laughs> I'm not going to keep you here all day. So we'll save the mountains for next time as, <laughs> yeah, I've got like 20 slides in here. So yeah, <laughs> we'll just end there uh, with that. Dispensationalism, what is it? How can we keep ourselves on track and understanding the Bible and not being carried away with every wind of current events that, you know, oh, did you see what Russia, Russia's military did today? It must be Ezekiel 38 and 39. It has to be because Jesus can come again any day. That's a problem. We've got to go to the scriptures and interpret them consistently, literally, and draw our conclusions from what that says, not our uh, lens of thinking how the world is. We've got to let the words on the page tell us what the Bible means. And when we do that, we'll understand that Babylon is a city. The mystery is being revealed. It's not a mystery now. It's be, it's, it has been revealed 2,000 years ago. It is a literal city that will be the headquarters of a one-world government coming together of government and religion that is going to have absolute, complete control over people's thinking and actions. And it is, therefore, obviously, will lead to great abominations as it is the mother of harlots and all the abominations of the earth. And may we in living in this world that is on a bullet train to this happening, may we be found faithful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ that rescues us from this satanic world in which we are living in. I thank you for shedding your blood for my sins and for the sins of everybody here and everybody in the world so that we can uh, have salvation, have the forgiveness of our sins and have eternal life with you. I thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to us to indwell us so that we can live for you. I pray that you would help us to do that, to depend on him moment by moment in this dark, evil world in which we are living and that we, so that we can accomplish what you have for us in this world. I thank you for the protection that you give us, uh, both physically and mentally. And I just pray that we would walk in that, that we would know that you are with us wherever we go and whatever we are going through, you are with us as believers. 
and just help us to have confidence in that, whatever, whatever this life may bring to us. We look forward to your coming again. And may, in the meantime, before you do, may we be a people who are zealous for good deeds, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.